So today we're wrapping up the series that we've been in called Faith Misunderstood. And I personally have found it very provocative and very powerful. We've talked about sin and grace and how faith can become a death grip and what it means to be spiritually mature. Now, Charles today is going to bring it in for a landing, and he's going to talk about an intriguing perspective on heaven and hell. Let's welcome Charles. Good. Good to see you all. Happy Sunday. There's a lot going on at the church today. You know, lots of focus groups, different rooms. A lot happening. And then we have River Partners meeting after this. So stick around. You get some pizza. It'll be fun, okay? So today, we're going to talk about something big. We're going to talk about heaven and hell. Big topic, yeah? You know, have you wondered about heaven and hell? Who goes to heaven? Who goes to hell? I'm going to tell you today who's going to go to hell. (laughs) Very useful, you know? Walk around and kind of think, oh, you're going to hell. (laughs) Well, but it is a very big topic, right? Most people think about heaven and hell, how does salvation work. And most people believe that you go to heaven as a reward for being a good person, for believing right, behaving right. And, And you go to hell as a punishment for being a bad person, for believing wrong things or behaving badly. And that's how most people think, right? I think that's the common assumption. Of course, there are tons of different belief systems on just how to define right belief and right behavior so that we can know who's going to heaven, right? Um, Evangelicals, you know, believe, for example, in four spiritual laws. How many of you have heard of four spiritual laws? Anybody? Well, come on. Some of us, right? I've heard it for years and years. It goes like this. We have to admit that we are all sinners. And sin has broken our relationship with God. And that has created this gap. And Jesus died to bridge that gap. And we accept all this. And we pray the prayer. We accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in our hearts. And get baptized and we get saved. How many of you have heard of this? Come on, okay, most of us. Good. Yay. Being honest, that's good. It's a very familiar line. It's backed by Bible verses like confess with your tongues and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and you will be saved. Very clear, right? You do this, you get saved. It's clear passage. Many people believe this, but not all. Uh, Many Pentecostal Christians are taught that you have to pray in tongues to be assured of salvation. You heard of praying in tongues? Yes? So, you know, it's a, that's a big thing in, among Pentecostal circles. And Catholics believe it's the sacraments, right? It's the baptism, it's the confessions, it's the communion. It's the sacraments that bring heaven, that bring salvation to you. And those are just some of the major Differences within Christianity. There's something like 30,000 denominations within Christianity. So, so a lot of different beliefs on just how you get saved. And, 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 and what about other religions? Like Islam and Buddhism and Judaism and Hinduism. And, and their 
internal divisions on who gets saved and who doesn't. And you add it all up and you get like, you get tens of thousands, if not 100,000 different beliefs on just who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and how you get saved, right? There's a lot of different options out there. It's uh, the curse of modernity. There's so many options, right? And so who is right? How can you tell? Isn't that a big, big question? Because what's at stake is heaven and hell. You know, we want to know who is right. And if one belief system is right, and everybody else is wrong, well, how does that work? Because is that fair? Because basically, what you believe as your religion It's pretty much entirely dependent on where you were born. You tell me where you were born, there's a very high probability you're one or the other. For example, if you were born in Saudi Arabia or Iran, there's virtually zero chance you will be an evangelical Christian. I can guarantee this. Right? If you're born in that troubled region, And you're taught, and you're told, and you see around you that bombs are falling on your mom's roof because of Christians, right? It's not an easy thing to demand that you accept in your heart and confess with your tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. That has a different meaning over there than it does to you and me over here. The two completely different things where one is associated with violence of the crusades and bombs falling on your uncle's house. And over here, it has a completely different meaning, right? It's just not fair to demand such things when it doesn't even mean the same thing, right? So is God going to condemn a billion people to eternal hell just for being born in the wrong country. When what they are asked to believe actually has a very different meaning from the actual Jesus Christ who has really nothing to do with crusades, right? And violence and bombs. That's not what Jesus Christ really stands for. So they they are right to reject violent Jesus. And so for doing that, they're going to go to hell. That's hard to take. Don't you think? So how does heaven and hell work? What can the Bible teach us on that? Because we do see these Bible verses. But that can't possibly mean this. So so what does the Bible say about heaven and hell? I am very excited to look into this with you. It's such a big topic, right? There is a passage that I believe contains a very key insight into salvation. It describes a scene when Jesus is getting crucified. That's a very powerful passage about salvation. Let's take a look, shall we? One of the criminals hanging beside Jesus, as Jesus is being crucified, scoffed. See, there were two other criminals being crucified with Jesus at the same time. And crucifixion, you have to understand, is a, uh, was the Roman method of torture 
and execution at the same time. It was reserved for the worst of the crimes. Right? Just like we reserve execution for the worst of the crimes, this was only reserved for the worst criminals. Okay? So there were two criminals getting crucified with Jesus at the same time. And one of them scoffs. So you are the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. So this criminal is told he will be in heaven that very day. And he's not going to do anything, then die pretty soon. So he is in heaven, right? And that's worth noting. This is significant because the Bible has only very few examples where it specifically cites this person is in heaven for sure. It's only a handful of people. We know for sure. And this is one of them. And so this contains some insight into, well, how did he get to go to heaven? You know, how did that happen? Does he pray the prayer? Does Jesus ask him, okay, right now you have to confess with your lips and accept in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Does he do that? Does he believe in four spiritual laws? Do you think? That doesn't come up. Does he do sacraments? That doesn't come up. Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in any of that stuff. He's not even interested in whether... He's a good person or not. I mean, think about it. This guy is being crucified for the worst crimes of his day. And he says he deserves to die. No argument from him. I mean, at least some of us could say, well, it's not fair. Well, this guy says, no, no. You know, I am a horrible criminal. (laughs) I deserve to die here. No, no argument from me. So he's a pretty horrible person, right? He's at least done horrible stuff. Jesus doesn't even ask, you know, why are you getting killed here? What horrible stuff? Are you a good person? He doesn't ask any of that. All this guy does is turn to Jesus, pretty much on the point of his death, he turns to Jesus and asks, can you help me out after we die? (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm going to die here and help me out. Remember me, (laughs) could you? And Jesus immediately says, you are in heaven for sure. That's all it takes. Wow, that's pretty simple, don't you think? Just ask and that's it? You're going to be in heaven? Now, grant you, this is a special moment. You know, Jesus is dying on the cross and that's a pretty historical moment. But I don't believe this is just a one-off event because if that was the case, I don't think Bible would take the trouble to include this in Bible if it didn't have any lessons for the rest of us? If this was specific to this guy and that's it, why would it even bother to tell us this story, right? It has key insight on how anybody gets saved and goes to heaven. In New Covenant faith, salvation comes from simply turning to the living God And asking for help. And God will respond. He always does. And that's the process. That's how salvation works. Just turn to God. Ask for help. God will help you. 
And that's the process of salvation. That's how you go to heaven. That's what the cross stands for. The cross does not ask you. It does not demand that you are a good person, that you believe right or do right. The cross stands for grace for everyone. The cross stands for Jesus accomplishing everything. And doesn't demand that we do stuff. It's grace for everyone. And I believe this is why Alcoholics Anonymous has been so effective over the years. You know, AA? You've heard of AA? You know, alcohols, addicts, you know, they are so effective. And they require all members to believe in a higher power who stands ready to help them. You can call it whatever you want. You don't have to be Christian. You don't have to be Islam. You don't have to believe in anything. Particularly, you just have to believe there is a higher power. That they will require. A God who stands ready to help you. It's the spirit of it that matters, not what you call it. I was talking with an AA member last week. He's been in it for three decades. And he says, the thing that keeps his faith in God fresh and alive is seeing just how consistently God helps people. And changes them in just unbelievable ways. And he said, it's just so remarkable. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be a good person, bad person, a secular person, an atheist, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist. It doesn't matter. If you turn to this higher power and ask for help, God rushes in and something remarkable happens in people's lives, which they haven't been able to experience on their own, forever and ever. And I believe this is what Jesus actually died on the cross to make happen. Grace for everyone. God's grace in action for everyone, not just after death, but right here on earth, when you're addicted. You're experiencing hell. You know what I'm saying? When you are in Alcoholics Anonymous, you have hit bottom. Because it's not easy for addicts to admit that this is a problem. You are in bo- you've hit bottom, you are experiencing hell, things are not going well. And you join this group and you ask for help from the higher power and stuff starts to happen. Grace for everyone. Power of heaven for everyone here and now. And this goes to the other huge misconception about heaven and hell. We think it's just after death. So while on earth, we do stuff. And if we do good, then we'll go to heaven after death. Never mind what's happening right now. You know, our lives could be bad, but in heaven it'll be good. You know that kind of thinking. Am I telling you right now, heaven and hell... i s felt on earth, here and now, and, and that stretches into eternity. It's not this discontinuous experience. It's a continuous experience. And you don't have to be addicted to taste hell on earth. I, mean, I was 18, I was at Stanford, I was on top of the world, and I... I had deep depression, I was lonely, and I was just in deeply unhappy state. You could be tasting hell on earth, 
at any stage in life, anywhere. I mean, that's what the Bible teaches us, that hell is right here on earth. The Bible describes the moment when that began in Genesis 3. When before the fall, there was no hell on earth. After the fall, hell is felt on earth. So let's take a look at that passage briefly to to understand how hell works on earth and after after death too. Genesis 3. This is right after the fall, after the human beings put the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the right and wrong, at the center. Hell begins, and at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed thick leaves together to cover themselves when the cool evening breezes were blowing. The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman. You gave me, who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. It's always the woman, isn't it? Man, this is horrible, right? Men, sit up and pay attention. (laughs) Don't do this, right? Bad thing. Bad, bad thing. Anyway, this is a seminal passage for us Christians because it describes the moment hell begins on earth. Wouldn't you agree? And it doesn't talk about fire and brimstone, does it? Does it say all of a sudden fire fell down and everybody died? And little red devils came with pitchforks and started poking people. Does it say that? No. What does it say? You know, when hell begins, the first thing that happens is they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When they see themselves naked, that means no filter. That means they are seeing themselves clearly, fully, you know, nothing to cover them and distort their vision. They're seeing who they are. And before they were happy about it, no problem. But now they feel this compulsion to cover up. This is heartbreaking. You know? Because now there is self-loathing. Now, now human beings are looking at themselves and they don't like what they see. There's this self-alienation going on. Can you relate to that? How many of you are just completely happy with who you are and you never get like these voices in your head? You know? You're no good. You're a loser. Why did you do that? Doesn't happen to any of you? Come on. This should be happening to everyone. (laughs) I'm not saying this should be happening like, you know, we ought to. I'm saying this is the condition of humanity as the Bible describes it. This is the original sin and its effects. This is hell. And we are all swimming in it. Therefore, I believe we are all doing this. Right? When we fail, you know, when we take the wrong road, it's like I automatically stop beating up on yourself. Anybody beat up on themselves and feel proud of it? You know? It's hell. It's horrible. Self-alienation. And then they hide from God. Alienation from God. And then they blame each other. Alienation from each other. 
Uh, it's the man who blames the woman. But I mean, you see the alienation that's going on. It's so alienation in every dimension. In every direction, there's alienation. And that is just very powerful and alive today. Right here, right now. This is not just after death. Right here in New York, we are practically living on top of each other, don't you think? And I can't tell you how many times people have told me that they feel alone. And does it get better in the suburbs? Oh, in the suburbs. It's even more alienating, isn't it? The movie is made about how alienating suburbs are. Right? And all those self-voices left to ourselves. Those, those forces and experience of alienation, they can build and build and build and build and build until you're just cut off into this horrible place of isolation. There is this theologian, Christian theologian named Gregory Boy who talks about an experience he had ministering at nursing homes. One day, he was visiting a nursing home and he met an elderly woman in her 80s. And in her youth, she was like this most beautiful person around. So she was pursued by many men. But the one that she chose and got engaged to, her fiancé ran off with her sister. It's a horrible betrayal, right? Terrible. So she was so hurt, she vowed that she would never speak to them again. She became very bitter. And, And because of that, she just made this decision to become this bitter person. And so, you know, you can't trust any man. They're all pigs, you know. And she became more and more bitter. She never got married. And over time, all her friends and all her family, one by one, began to fall away because it just, it's just so hard to connect with her. And so now, by the time Boyd found her, She was in her 80s, and she was proud about how they never heard her voice again, but nobody ever visits her. She's completely alone, without one person in the world who cared that she even existed. So to quote Boyd, he says, her life had completely curved in on itself, shut off from the land of the living. This woman's whole reality was her self-willed hatred. And she was its only Lord. This was the reality she wanted and freely chose for herself. Indeed, whereas once she could have chosen otherwise, now, as far as any human could discern, she had eternally become the hateful decision she had made. This hell was her reality, but it was only hers. To all participants in the real world, she had virtually ceased to exist. Her victory... And the world she had won by this victory was real only from the inside. Do you get what he's describing here? That she is so cut off from anything that exists. And nobody cares what she's feeling. You know, she has ceased to exist to anyone alive. (laughs) But she continues on in this isolation. This is horrible. And this is... The alienation of the fall described in Genesis 3 taken to its utter and logical conclusion. If that alienation just keeps building, it will land you in this, what I would call, relational black hole. Have you heard of black holes? You know, there are these things out there. They are 
so dense, not even light can escape its pull. And once, you know, it just doesn't interact with anything. It does, nothing can come in or out. You, you are stuck, you know, this black hole. Like that, relationally, you can exist in a relational black hole. where you cease to exist to anything real that's outside of you. Nothing can interact with you. You only exist from within. And this is one reason why I believe that the Bible describes hell as both a place of non-existence as well as a place of torment. It's a horrible, horrible place to be in. So let's not go there, yeah? I would really prefer not to end up there. Would you? But it's so easy. I mean, the pull of the gravity of relational black hole, there are so many ways that we can fall into alienation and isolation. If we lie, that's disconnecting, right? A false reality is a, if you create a false reality, that's no good. we need to sit up and take notice because that creates disconnection, don't you think? You are stepping away from what's real. You can lie to yourself. Self-deception. That will bring alienation. If you're self-centered, that will bring alienation. If you get envious, if you can fall into obsessed about success, all of that can bring... You can be obsessed about righteousness even. And that can easily bring alienation, right? There's so many ways that we can fall into alienation. So let's take warning from the story of this bitter old lady. Don't let judgment and bitterness drive you into isolation. She was bitter because she made this judgment, right? And uh, and, the... And the interesting thing here that we must notice is that she had the right to judge. She had the right to be bitter. And yet she is the one experiencing hell. Isn't that ironic? And this is where a righteous person, a person who is in the right, could become a hateful person and end up in hell. This is why tree of knowledge of good and evil is such a dangerous thing to eat from. Religion, or religiously self-righteous people, have historically been forces of alienation rather than forces of connection. And they could be right in every way. Right? And they could still be entirely of hell and spreading hell. And in that way, they are utterly wrong. Do you get that? That's something we must understand. So who's going to hell? Who's going to heaven? The critical question there isn't so much, are you believing in the right thing and do you live a clean life? You could live the cleanest life and have the rightest beliefs and still be in hell and spreading hell like this woman. That's not the question. The question is, are you connecting or are you alienating? 
That's what you got to be asking. Are you living by love? Are you living by hate? That's the critical question. What's happening in your life right now? Are you becoming more kind and patient and gracious like the fruits of the Holy Spirit? All the fruits of the Holy Spirit are about making you more of a connecting person. Have you noticed that? The cross is all about connection. In opposition to hell, heaven is all about connection. That's what heaven is about. The cross didn't solve wars or world hunger, you know, these big problems. And people can wonder, what good did it really do? You know, it's not a God dies on the cross. It ought to do something big. And you can kind of dismiss the cross because it doesn't seem to do that much big stuff. What does the cross do? The cross, as Orthodox Christians believe, is the cross reconnected us to God by taking care of our guilt. The cross became the basis for unbounded forgiveness towards each other, making connection to each other always possible. The cross took care of all shame and blame. Now it's no longer about what we do. It's all about Jesus. So it took away all self-loathing, self-judgment. Correct? That is what we say the cross did. It counters the three alienations of the fall. It took, it took care of all the forces of hell. That is a much bigger deal than people give it credit for. Because what's at stake here isn't just hunger, it's heaven and hell. And that's what it did. That's what it addressed. Very powerful. So here's my second practical suggestion. Tap into the cross to fight off the isolating forces of shame and guilt. That is a big deal. You have to pay attention to that. You've got to sit up. Because it's everywhere and it's subconscious. It's happening all the time. We don't even notice it. I want to show you a clip that shows how prevalent it is and how we don't notice it. Would you, could we show that clip? Bah, oui, ça va, enfin, ça va. Mm. T'as un grand buste, t'as une toute petite jambe. Excuse-moi, quoi, fais gaffe, quoi. Mais arrête. En fait, en fait c'est pas ça. C'est quoi Parce qu'il y a des meufs qui s'en sortent avec ça. Mais toi, en plus, t'as pas de charme. On m'a demandé d'écrire dans un carnet à chaque moment où j'avais une pensée sur mon physique. Mercredi, 10h, je me sens moche. J'ai deux dents de lait ici et donc quand je souris, je ressemble à une souris. Je suis obligée de dire ça. C'est horrible. Pas de bonnes proportions, euh, un grand buste avec des petites jambes. C'est bizarre, un grand buste sur des petites jambes, t'as pas de charme. Salut Marie. Salut Pierre. Ça va bien Viens avec toi. Ouais, ça va. Ça va T'as creuse quoi. T'es hyper creusée là aujourd'hui. Tes petites dents de lait là qui te restent, on dirait une souris. Tu conserves une tête de bulldog quoi. T'as les plis qui démarrent du nez, qui descendent vers là, enfin c'est. En plus, t'as grossi, c'est terrible, quoi. 
puis tiens-toi droite, quoi, ça te fait du bide, sérieux. T'as as des bras euh, tout gros, ça, ça te fait une silhouette toute tassée. Tu te sens pas horrible, là Avec tes grosses cuisses et tes, tes, ta culotte de cheval, quoi. J'aimerais bien juste te voir avec un corps normal, au moins une fois. Je me permets. Euh, je trouve ça un peu dur, ce que vous lui dites, quand même. C'est hyper violent hein, de se dire ça. Mais, mais en fait, c'est ce que je me dis à longueur de journée. Et là, je prends conscience de la, de la violence du truc. Elle disait exactement la chose que je me disais euh, à moi-même dans, dans le carnet, en fait. C'est J'aimerais pas que ma fille euh, se parle comme ça. C'est clair. C'est pas justifié, en fait. Je pense qu'on est toutes euh, très belles. Oui, bien s'aimer, ouais. Tout simplement. Ouais. Pretty powerful, yeah? Don't you think? That people say these things to themselves and we don't even notice it. And it's not just about women, right? It's not just about body image. This happens in every direction, Right? And, and sometimes we even think of it as virtue. Like beating up on ourselves. How many of us say things like, oh, you know, at least, at least I am more harsh towards myself than others. Yes? That's like saying I'm like bringing more hell to myself than others, so I feel good. I just bring hell to everyone, but I'm just, I bring more hell to myself. That's just great. Well, good job, right? I mean, you can get focused on the wrong things. You can pay attention to the wrong things and get distracted. We can get focused on being right, behaving right. And when you get focused on that, then... That's when beating up on yourself becomes a virtue. Because you want to improve yourself. If your goal becomes this, this you know, body or success or righteousness or whatever, then you start doing all these alienating things and bringing hell to everywhere and think, oh no, I'm, this is what I ought to do. That is horrible, right? Like this woman. This bitter woman, if she had once in her life really thought this through and said, yes, I am in my right, but look at what's happening to my life. If she said to herself, people are leaving me. I'm alienating everyone. doesn't matter if I'm right because it's just really the fruit of it is just alienation everywhere. That would have been a good thought, Yes. And so today, I, this is my third practical suggestion. Pay attention. Pay attention to every alienating thought towards the self, others, and God. What's happening? In your life, just take a moment and start reflecting. What's happening in my words and actions towards myself, people around me, and God? What are the kind of stuff comes up? Is it Connecting or is it alienating? We need to really take that seriously because we could be like swimming in hell and spreading hell and think we're actually doing good. 
That would be a tragedy. So don't tell yourself, I'm a Christian, I'm a good person, I go to church, I believe in the right things, I live a pretty clean life. You know, I'm going to heaven. That's not what you ought to be thinking about. Think about, am I connecting or am I alienating? No, I'm not saying just roll over. Like this woman, she she shouldn't have just said, oh, you know, it's all right, run off with my fiancé, that's fine. And just create this, that would be just creating a false reality. And that creates disconnection too. You, you have, every real connection is based on something genuine and authentic, not lies, right? But an attempt towards authentic connection she never made, you know? And that's what decides whether you are of heaven or of hell. You know, what's happening right now? That tells you, that's the biggest sign, whether you're going to hell or heaven. Are you living by the cross? Are you living for connection? Because the cross is all about connecting, like we said. This is part of what it means to you have to carry your cross every day. That's what makes us a Christian, to live for connection. It doesn't matter what we call ourselves, label-wise. What matters is the inner reality that is the actual thing that's happening. You could be a Christian and be a very, very alienating person through self-righteousness. You could be a Bible-banging person that alienates all these different people. By saying, you know, this is what the word of God is and this is right, you could be in the right. And you could be spreading hell. You could be a Muslim or Buddhist. And if you love and if you connect, then you're moving towards heaven because that is what the cross is. That's why the Bible tells you everyone who loves knows God and is of God. Everyone. Not just Christians. It's everywhere. Everyone. This is what is heaven and hell. So we have to sit up and pay attention. It's so easy to be pulled into the black hole of relational isolation. The good news is, it's so simple to bring heaven into your life. All it takes is turn to God and ask for help. That's what the cross does. That's why that criminal story is so powerful and important. Like all those people in the AA groups or the criminal next to Jesus on the cross, just turn to God. Whenever you fall into any kind of alienation, just turn to God and ask for help. And powers of heaven will come. Jesus is alive and he stands ready. to bring heaven into your life, here into eternity. Just ask for help. Good stuff will happen. And on that front, Jesus established his church on earth to bring connection. That's what the Bible tells us in Ephesians. The church is God's vehicle to bring connection to everything. So use church to help you get better at connecting because we could use some help. And church is imbued with this special power and gift from God to help people stay connected. Now, I know that not every church is focused on connection. I think a lot of churches 
are so focused on right thoughts and right behavior and biblical worldview that they really are more alienating than connecting. Because one of the top reasons people say they don't go to church in surveys is that people say, I feel too ashamed to go to church. I feel like I'm not good enough. I feel like I have to clean up my act before I can come before God. And I find that so tragic. Such shame and guilt. I mean, we preach that cross took away all shame and guilt. Why is there so much shame and guilt in church? It's because we've been distracted into focusing on the wrong thing, into putting the tree of right and wrong and good and evil at the center rather than the tree of life. And we've been co-opted in many, many ways. And so we need to sit up and pay attention and use church. We don't, we don't want to do that here. I mean, it's tragic, but at least here, let's focus on connection. Agreed? Amen? Let's live by the cross. The cross is at the center here. And with that, God's power is here to help us connect. So this is a good moment to plug the church retreat that's coming up. August 13th through 15th. Come on, come to the retreat. Let's stay connected. Let's get better at connecting. That's where great connections do happen. So please come and let's use each other to forgive, to connect, to get to know. If Christianity was about right doctrine and behavior, then you can do it on on your own. But if it's about connecting, We need each other, right? So let's do this. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross to restore our connections. God, we pray now that you would open our eyes to see how hell is at work in our lives and we don't even see it. Help us to pay attention to what's really happening all around us. And help us become people of connection, not people of alienation. Help us, O God, to connect with you, not just have religion of Christianity. Holy Spirit, come even now. Transform us inside out. And thank you that all it takes is just turning to you and asking for help. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And we pray that all of us sitting here right now will experience heaven in increasing measure day after day, week after week, year after year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.